Hello and welcome to episode 22 of Design Truth. Um, my name is Brad Harper. I am an industrial design recruiter and me and my design mate Drew have a beer, speak to the weird and wonderful people in our industry and hit record. Um, today we are joined by John Mariello, otherwise known as Design Theory on little old YouTube to get a feel for how that all works and stick a little deeper into industrial design uh, over in the US and how it may compare to the UK. About halfway through this, um, John and Drew decided to go into a form of role play of how to deal with awkward clients. So if you are new around here, it's a design truth first. Um, Thank you as always for your support. Um, We are actually starting conversations with potential sponsors of Design Truth. Um, So if you know of anyone um, wanting to get some form of brand, product or service in front of some design eyeballs, then uh, track us down. Uh, Yeah, see you on the other side. is everything going john everything is going great yeah i remember the last time i spoke to you i can't know don't know if you remember it but i think we were just about to record a video for you and then someone turned the microwave on and you remember that i do remember that yeah Yeah. luckily (laughs) i uh quarantined her to her room so there will be no microwaving at this uh, point in time it was a particular moment drew and um it was just like one of those things where when you start like recording video and stuff, you're like, yeah, yeah. everything else needs to be quiet. And then it's like, moments where it's like, ding. <laughs> and you're like, oh yeah. God, what's going on? You know, What was it that happened to, there was one of these episodes where someone started like trimming a hedge or mowing yeah, a lawn my, or my next drilling neighbor, through the yeah, wall yeah. behind you or something. Yeah, my next door neighbour started to um, trim their hedge. And just to give you context, this is about probably like two o'clock in the afternoon or something. It's like, you know, it's like, what are you doing on like a Wednesday? And um, I thought my laptop exploded. I was just like, oh my. And we had this poor guy on from Australia who must have been like, it's like an hour into this chat. We're quite deep in. And all of a sudden I just get like, I was like, oh my God, what is going on? I was like, Drew, you're going to have to take over. My laptop's dying. And then I don't know, this kind of, and yeah, went outside. Like, this guy just like trimming his edge. I was like, I've got a podcast, mate. What's going on? <laughs> Not that professional, as you can tell already, John. Um, but that's, it's got, that's quite all right. But it's got us this far. And so we're going to pursue uh, with it. But um John, feel free to kind of introduce yourself because I'd imagine there'll be lots of people. Well, lots of our listeners are UK-based, for example. And so when I bring on or when we bring on, I don't know, some sort of agency founder like Joe, for example, last time, everyone kind of knows who she is. So it's a bit like doesn't really need a lot of introduction. But for UK listeners, design theory might be something they never looked at before. So yeah, I don't yeah, know absolutely. So feel free to introduce yourself to the masses, John. Sure. So first of all, Brad and Drew, thank you for having me on the podcast. It's oh, nice. uh, pretty exciting. Uh, you know, I've I've yeah. watched quite a few of the other episodes, and I'm really flattered to be part of that roster. So thanks for that. And no in terms of my background, I've been working in professionally as an industrial designer for about ten years now. Uh, most of my work tends to focus on 
things that fit on or around the body. So any sort of wearable or wearable tech, whether that's AR glasses, regular glasses, medical devices, surgical devices, uh, masks, pretty mm. much anything you can think of that fits on the body. I've probably had some hand in designing, although I've done a lot of other things. I've done some, I mean, you know, industrial design is a pretty broad field. So I've also done things like um, designing food truck interiors, faucets, um, restaurant interiors. Like it, there, it's kind of been a weird variety of things, but I seem to have settled into this sort of wearable tech space. It's a cool place to be. Drew talks yeah. very passionately about catheters. Sometimes, <laughs> so you know, I feel like it's one of those things where design is. You're absolutely right. It's such a broad field that yeah. it, I mean, I go to. Um, I do a little bit of work with a company called Joseph Joseph here in the UK, and I've never seen a group of people more enthusiastic about a bin before in my life. You know, yeah. you go to the office, this swanky space, and there's just like these seven or eight people just looking around this bin, and you're just like, guys, it's just a bin. <laughs> well, you're not the designer, but you're like, you're, you're a consumer or something like that. So Jess gets a bit lost on how excited I get about Brabantia things. Right. So if I'm like, oh, I've, I've you know, uh, we, we're moving into this new place, and I was getting super excited about maybe getting hold of a Brabantia bin for in the kitchen. Oh, nice! Um, like, I just well, well, it's a bin. Like, why are you going to spend that amount of money on a bin? What's wrong with you? Like, but wait, let me tell you about the details. <laughs> just one of those things you could get super excited about the most mundane things when you're a designer. Is that what kind of brought you into it, John? Absolutely. So there are a couple of things that brought me into it. My brother actually studied industrial design. Now he does game design. And I think he actually went into user research more recently, but that was a big thing. I was always building things as a kid. Another thing is that uh, in regards to the interest in the mundane, I can definitely relate to that. I Did you design catheters for Coloplast by any chance? Uh, no, <laughs> uh, but I'm very, very familiar with Coloplast, uh, intimately familiar with Coloplast catheters. Just wondering, because I know Native Design over in the UK did a bunch of catheters for, and a bunch of other work for Coloplast. And they're actually quite, quite nicely designed. Mm-hmm. No, they're really, really good products. They, they are, yeah. Um, yeah we're, we're pinning our hope I, on I sponsorship one day. I can't say too much about this because uh, I've done so much work on, um, well, not, not, not on Coloplast, but on... <laughs> I mean, you can see on my LinkedIn profile who I've worked for and all of that, right? So, I mean, it's no secret that I've worked at, at Combatech for a long time in basically trying to create a, a, a worthy rival. I'm not going to say any more about that because of, you know, because of IP and because I know that some of my former colleagues listen and I, I dare say there might even be people who I worked with. Nope, got to shut up now. Got to just, got to just shut my mouth. Well, that will be, that, be an awkward editing that bit out. But um, yeah, we're well, pin- leave it in. Leave it we're, in. That's the reality of it. It's like this yeah. is the bit when you're having public conversations about things you've designed. There are times you have to go, Joe. Oh, I can't say anymore. Yeah. I understand. Yeah. I yeah. I used to um, every now and again you'll um, you'll start dealing with like a couple that are in industrial design. So like. Um, they find love, you know, in their first design workplace or something. And um, it's amazing because when they start working for like two different companies, they get home and they can't talk about work <laughs> because neither of them can talk about what they've been doing. Um, and so yep. there are, we should probably try and bring on a couple at some point. Drew. There are a couple of design couples out there that are, are, uh, are kind of working colleagues on stuff. Yeah. And it's an interesting kind of uh, thing, but 
John, whilst you're also a designer, you're also a bit of a YouTuber as well. I don't know, I if, that's a, I don't know if that's a fair assessment to make. Yeah, so I actually teach at California College of the Arts. It's just a part-time thing, usually one or two classes a semester. Mm. And the reason why I do that is because that has been the single thing that has really elevated my design sensibilities. Because, you know, design is a very intuitive process. It's very hard to articulate why you do certain things. And in order to teach effectively, you need to be able to articulate, you know, the the mm-hmm. rationale behind these decisions. So I think it's probably the best thing that I've ever done in terms of just my own uh, design practice, but it's also helped to benefit a lot of people who are maybe starting out in design and even people who are actually pretty far along. They, they just like to watch them because they think it's an interesting uh, or differing perspective. So yeah, go check out Design Theory after this video is over <laughs> and you've listened to all of the Design Truth podcasts. Go check out Design Theory. It talks I a lot about just... A, a link. Oh, is it up here somewhere? I or there? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, somewhere around here. <laughs> oh yeah, let's bring, let's bring the, the fictitious graphics department up. Follow the link up here. Yeah, I don't know. It'll be there somewhere. But, but So can, I'd love just to talk a little bit about youtube and stuff because i said to you on a message earlier john and i find it really fascinating that when i put up a thing on instagram and occasionally i put something up which says who would you like on as a guest on design truth and maybe we'll try and get them on you know one of those kind of things and sometimes we get interesting suggestions but i always get two suggestions that come up every single time and quite commonly, one of them is Johnny Ive, by the way. Who, <laughs> right. Oh, man, I hope you can get Johnny Ive. I mean... That would be amazing. So, <laughs> then we'll get Good luck. <laughs> I mean, we're number one in Ecuador. So, I mean, you know, if, if, if Johnny does want to come on and expand his kind of remit out there, then that's always a good start point. And the second one is always Sam Does Design. Ooh. So those are the two names that people, when like... Uh, and you think if you went back like 20 years and someone was to ask you of the two designers you would love <laughs> to hear for an hour, one of them, you know, that it wouldn't be those people, would it, in the sense of like a design YouTuber and and the guy that's like the mastermind behind Apple. It just seems too extreme, don't you? But I just find it interesting that there is this kind of sense of like if when you're putting yourself out there a bit more that people want to listen, you know. Uh, I just find it all such an interesting thing of like, and I messaged Sam earlier to, to, to him to mention that, and he kind of laughed at it. And it was like, yeah, I want either to listen to either Johnny Ive or, or or Sam from London. It's like, you know, it just, it just makes me laugh. Did you, uh, I mean, did you ask him if he wants to come on the show? Is he going to come on it, you think? I think he's coming on, yeah. I think he's coming on. And again, another guest with a USB mic. So we're pretty buzzing with that, you know, two in a yeah. row. <laughs> two, two. We're, 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 just, we're just ecstatic that someone's got a USB mic, to be honest. Yeah. You can't <laughs> underestimate the power of audio. You but, you cannot. know, one thing that's that's interesting about Sam is that, you know, maybe he's he's just starting out in design, but uh, he actually has really good insights. Um, he's very humble in his approach. And... I think you can actually learn something from Sam Does Design because even if you are maybe a little bit more junior, you still have a lot to offer just in terms of documenting and showing your process. Um, So I think that's really valuable. And Mm. I think there's definitely something that younger designers can learn from Sam in that that regard without a doubt. Just sort of, I think you're right. Putting yourself out there is is a big deal, even if it's not sort of uh, positioning yourself as this expert. I mean, he's just saying like, look, 
this is what I know. Uh, if you want to check it out, great. If mm. you don't, if not, that's off. fine too. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, John, on that, um, you mentioned your brother studied industrial design, but who were the? Did you have heroes coming into it? Did you? How did you know about it, and what sort of? What were the? Who were the names that brought you in, or was there something that you saw that you just fell in love with that you thought like? I, I don't know. I won't. I won't. That's a great question. Yeah, who are your so, inspirations? Yeah. So in terms of inspiration, it's important to note that in, in addition to my brother studying industrial design, he's eight years older than me. Uh, so he was always building things when he was a kid, like, you know, eight, 10, 12 years old. And so I would basically go in and just destroy all of his, his creations being eight years younger than him by trying to help build them, uh, build them out further. So that was a big influence. But another big one was actually my mother. So as a second career, she started out in banking, investment banking. And then her second career was in interior design. She studied at the New York School of Interior Design, which is one of the most prestigious interior design schools in the country. And uh, I was constantly just sort of sitting behind her on her chair, watching her do her like color homework or, you know, uh, you know, doing floor plans or hand renderings and things like that. So I think that definitely played a big part in it as well. Just watching my mother go through school. That was a big thing. Nice. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. And um, we've talked about this before, but just, um, you, you know, you may have heard, you may not. My um, older cousin, who's, I mean, what, like 20 years older than me or something like that. He was a graphic designer. He was the only person I knew out of all the adults I knew in my family that didn't absolutely hate his job. Everyone else worked <laughs> for the two weeks a year that they could go to Spain or something. But you know, he, he had you know nice things. He had uh, you know decent, decent, decent clothes and decent car. Um, and I was like, well, what's he, what? What is it that he's doing? Why is this? Why is, why is everything so much better for him? And yeah, he got to basically draw, uh, draw things and um, put together packaging and things like this. And I was like, okay, cool. I'm I'm up for that. I'll do that. And then, I, and then I was like, oh, no, I want to design cars. And then, you know, I think, um, so like the, the Escort Cosworth came along, you're like, holy shit. Like, what, what is this thing, you know? And, and it, yeah, you get lost in, uh, it's possible that you could draw cars for a living and have them made. Uh, and then later on, I was like, I don't want to just draw cars. I want to draw lamps and chairs and, and obviously catheters. <laughs> yeah, of course, catheters. I'm sure the career advisor said, "Look, you'd be a really good cat. You'd be a really good catheter designer." Catheter <laughs> designer. About what about, me... about knee components? Yeah, you draw the shit out of a knee. Well, let me ask you a question. Uh, do you think that your sort of uh, do you think that your impression of what the field would actually be like is in line with the reality? Um, no, <laughs> no. We were, um, so. Uh, again, this has probably come up a few times on the podcast, but there was a show on uh, on the BBC or Channel Four or something like that um, when I was a teenager, and that was about um, industrial designers. Uh, going was, that the, was that the Seymour Powell? One? It was the Seymour Powell. Yeah, yeah. it's um, it's a show called Better Better by. I think design, it was Better by or... Design. Yeah, I always remembered it as Designs on Your. There's a there's a couple there's a couple on YouTube, Johnny. You should check them out. It's one of a razor and one of a shopping trolley, I think on. And it's so nostalgic. It's pure nineties. Yeah. Um, I'll write that down. 
Yeah, yeah. Seymour Power is a big agency here. So yeah, but you're absolutely it's you're absolutely for people of your generation, Drew, that was seen as like like inspirational kind yeah, of it's, content. It, it is. It's like hearing I don't know, like when you hear a band and they've got this whole new guitar sound or something like that. Um and you're like I don't know, probably like the first time for a lot of people would have heard a band like Slipknot and you go, Whoa, that's so heavy. What on mm. earth is that? And then or you discover that there's loads more about that and around it but um yeah it's like it's a spark and it just it opens up a whole new avenue yeah. so that probably has to be the i guess the headline credit for me mm. um, but then yeah you go you sort of start learning more and looking at okay well why is this chair this shape and uh, you start hearing these words that turn out to be people's surnames and yeah it's like it's it's, it's very very cool I'll throw a question to you, Drew, then. If, if we kind of keep on the topic of YouTube, if, if we look at this generation coming through, does an Instagram page sit as the equivalent of your experience watching that programme as a young 15, 16-year-old chap in <laughs> <I'm>, Chester? <laughs> almost certainly. Uh, and I'm definitely qualified to speak for uh, the current generation of 15-year-olds. But I'm just I'm just throwing it out there. Is it, is it like yeah. seen as like, you know, your your YouTube channel design theory? Is it like what are the pieces of content now that a, a fairly aspiring designer would look at? They probably would. It could almost sit as that equivalent where we could look back in 10 years' time and say, you know, how did you get involved in design? And someone would probably say, well, I watched this guy on YouTube. And you know, it really... <laughs> that would be so nuts. Yeah. And uh, it was the thing that... Exciting. Yeah. Maybe. I mean, it's interesting because industrial design is still a fairly obscure field. Mm. Most people still don't know what it is. Mm. Um, it's certain like all of the information is, is much more accessible now, but it's still relatively obscure. Mm. So there is an opportunity there uh, to basically evangelize it. Although to be fair, in terms of traditional job paths, I don't know if it can really support like a huge number of people going into the field, which is a whole nother issue, mm. at least going into to traditional industrial design jobs, yeah. right? So that's another thing that could be interesting to talk about. <laughs> well, we've just, but, ne well, next week, uh, John, me and Drew have, have assembled a bit of a a mini team to, to go to, we've been asked to go, or not go to, but... Um, uh, a university here in the UK called Nottingham Trent are putting together a final year showcase. And they kind of came to us, Drew, didn't they? And said, well, what do we do? You know, we haven't got people walking around in their business cards, you know, potential employers going to new designers. So what, what, what can we do to um, get industry feedback um, on our students' work? And we had this kind of crazy idea that where we would get clients and people in on a zoom call and then the Miro session would come up and work would come up and then we'd review it we'd record it we'd then send it to the to the to the students and one thing that struck me was just the volume of students I on know, this course it's nuts. and it's you know Nottingham Trent lovely people absolutely loved them but I wouldn't say they're like a top top tier university here in the UK but I've full of admiration for them they've been a great bunch to Austria but just the volume of students that are going through I it. Know. And you think, where are these people going to go? You know, and I, and I haven't seen their work yet, and they could be awesome designers, but it's like, what, not you're going to have to pivot here. You're not going to get that traditional industrial design job. Um, and that's okay. You don't have yeah. to. I mean, 
you know, not everybody is meant to work at who's one like Samsung, let's say not yeah. everybody's meant to work at Samsung and that's totally okay. You can start your own company there. I mean, industrial design is inherently just I, a device. Geez, I can't speak a <laughs> divergent method of thinking. I didn't even drink anything and I can't speak. Yeah. It's a divergent <laughs> method of thinking. Right. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you can treat your career as essentially a design project and figure out like, okay, what do I do with these skills or how do they apply to other aspects of business and where can I, I best leverage my skill set? And it's an incredibly valuable skill set. It's just that I think people are very narrowly honed in on like, oh, yeah, I they want to work. They want to work, I need at, to work at Samsung. Yeah. yeah. But there's so much more that you can do with the profession. I mean, I make YouTube videos and sure, it's really not my primary source of income by any stretch. But I mean, that is an example of something that you could explore. I mean, Mm. it's definitely worth thinking about from that perspective, I think. Yeah. So go on. I'll pick up on that because like I I didn't have much of a a clear plan. Uh, I did. When I studied it, it was called product design. Um, Are you telling me that Design Truth wasn't a, a plan of yours when you? No, when I was fourteen, know. I decided what I need to do is meet a lad named Brad, exactly, who yeah. at this probably, point, probably wasn't even born. No, so how <laughs> you would have been like, yeah, you would have been a child. I, I yeah. mean, like a child that yeah. eventually will grow up to be a lot taller than me, I suspect. Yes, sixteen. We've never met in real life. No, no, we live hundreds of miles away from one another. Mm. Um, but there we are. Um, yeah. I need to make a podcast, which is something that I've, like, I couldn't possibly conceive of. Never heard of before. Um, yeah, and then put it on YouTube, which is imagine if you know Channel Four and BBC Two had a late night baby, um, yeah. and nobody was in charge of it. <laughs> yeah, no one regulates the thing. <laughs> Public access yeah. TV, uh, but you know, in an age where everyone's got pretty good cameras. Mm. Yeah. Well, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. I mean, think about it. Even 30, 40 years ago, who would have thought that we'd all have cameras in our pockets? High resolution, high fidelity, you know, 1080p or 4K cameras in our pockets. If you'd even combining a phone with a camera 30 years ago is it would would have been a completely ridiculous idea that made no sense at all. That's one thing that my uh, friend Rafi always says. He's like, you know, people would have laughed you out of the room if you said to combine a camera and a phone. But meanwhile, here we are. So yeah, yeah. And then you take something like trying to get your house keys onto onto a onto a device of that sort of nature. People are like, no, no, not not having it. But how helpful would that be? <laughs> yeah. you know, like to take some of the some of the um, you know facial recognition technology and put it on your on your door or a garage or a car, something where like if you've got limited uh, dexterity or strength or whatever, those kind of things are super duper helpful. And or if you're just like really forgetful like me. Mm. Frequently shut the self-locking door and go, bollocks, my kids. Can I get into the window? <laughs> you know, all that kind of thing would be super helpful, but people are like, no, no, I'm not having that. That's a security threat. Yeah. What, to be able to recognise your face? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, you're right. That's... There's just this hesitancy with all these things that turn out to be really good ideas. But yeah, something like a camera and a phone, I don't need either of those things in my pocket. So why do I want both? Why, yeah. why, do I, why do I now absolutely need both of them at all times in my pocket? Otherwise, I'm going to freak out. And these things yeah. aren't expensive either. You know, if, if you think about kind of designers that want to get into this kind of thing, let's say there's someone out there that wants to start up a YouTube channel, because apparently people of a younger generation would rather be a 
influencer than a, than a footballer now. Whereas in my generation, that everyone would want to play for play for United, they wouldn't want to now. But um, and I'm sure in 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 Jews' generation, maybe sports per what would be the that? But now we still had football thirty years ago. Yeah, really. but, but is that what is that what people wanted to do when they grew up? You know. Um, yeah, I would say like the main difference um, for for things like that, like if you were going to be a musician when I was a kid, right. you were going to learn how to play the guitar. Whereas now you, yeah. Like you'd want to dance to something. Learn the lap. Learn now to use the keys on the laptop, which puts the beat together. I don't even know. Um, but you know, but now most most you know most people kind of get, you know growing up, they want to be influencers. They want to be online personalities and stuff. Who's, and again, who's left to influence? influence yeah, the, if everybody's an influencer. Then who's the who's being influenced? Yeah. <laughs> influence the influencers. If you're not paying for it. You're the parent. So like it's yeah. not a job, it's like that you're that's a, a service to a company. Like you're hmm. the problem. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know it, about I the personally find it I personally find it fascinating. Like I just like even my mum, you know, she'll like watch some um uh some YouTuber that's like buys bits around the house or something and she finds it fascinating. Like and she's a you know, a 55 year old woman that can barely use the iPad, but she finds it absolutely fascinating that someone, you know, buys paint pots uh, and then kind of puts it on the screen, but she doesn't know she's been influenced because now she's gone and bought the same color that this YouTuber, but she doesn't, she's so unaware of how the, how it all works, but is a pawn to that process. It's fat. I just find it fascinating. So go on, John. Who, what, or who, or what is the influencer that has like crept into your brain and made you buy something that you didn't realize you needed? Oh, well, that's going into very subconscious psychology. So I don't know that I'd be able to articulate. Um, I do tend to read a lot of reviews online and I do go on YouTube when I'm going to buy a camera or something like the camera that I'm using right now to record, for example. Um, I looked at a ton of reviews online. I don't know if there was a specific, if I can recall a specific person, there is this one guy, I think his name is Drew who has really good gear reviews, but yeah, I mean, I, I think nowadays nobody buys a product without reading at least some kind of a review. Yeah. Just as an example of how one could influence somebody through, uh, you know, just a product review. That yeah. alone is huge. I mean, I mean, putting a podcast together is not the most expensive thing in the world. You know, you yeah. buy a mic and you buy a webcam. But even in that process, it's like, what's the best USB mic? I'll watch a couple of videos to see what people are saying. And, and you know, is it is it worth the extra 50 quid? Or, and I'll, I'll spend more time watching someone review it than when yep. I'm in the checkout. And I just, even just like a, and there are certain brands like a Logitech cam, you think, oh, Logitech is going to be a half decent product. So you kind of lean towards it. But then, um, yeah, it, it almost like any kind of decision you make in terms of purchasing something, you do, you do kind of creep into that kind of, you want someone to give you that reassurance, don't you, that you are actually buying something that's, that's not going to break down on you and, in a month's exactly. time. Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. And I, at least speaking for, for myself personally, I would not consider myself an influencer by any stretch. Oh, and I, I do yeah. not aspire to be an influencer. <laughs> I would I would make those videos on YouTube even if nobody watched it. And if you don't believe me, it, there's proof of it because basically for two <laughs> go, years, go, yeah, go nobody was watching them. <laughs> nobody was watching them for two years. So it's actually true. I get more out of them than anybody else because 
once again, it helps me to articulate my design decisions so that when I'm in a client meeting, I can tell you exactly why, you know, this thing is, is this shape or whatever else. And there's not going to be any debate about it. Now, the client can still decide to disagree on it, but at least I'm maximizing my chances of saying like, okay, this is the right decision. And if they decide to go against it, that's, that's on them. <laughs> so okay, so what, what do you do when that happens? So we could almost role play. It. How about, how about <laughs> Drew, why don't you be the stubborn client? And I say, okay, uh, this is, this is the design. Why don't you just say you want it to be, uh, say you want it to be, you want five millimeters thinner. You want it in orange black to express my rage. <laughs> you want it in black? I needed I need it in black to express my rage. Why okay. would it work in black? Well, I think that it really depends on the overall brand aesthetic that we're going for. So this is an Apple pencil, right? Where you're Apple. Um, are you familiar with any other products that sort of have black in the Apple product line? I'm going to just reach for my phone. <laughs> no, it's, no, no, no. This is not supposed to be like, I'm right and you're wrong. It's, it's no. a conversation because yeah, I'm not yeah. assuming that this is this has to be white. That's right. actually really important to note here. Uh, what I'm going to do is, is take the position of a former, um, I would say like an in-house client and go, okay, but my, my, uh, my trousers, but in fact, they're dungarees. And I want to try and like, Brad, just as an aside, I need Carhartt to sponsor me because they're so <laughs> expensive. And I have like just racks of Carhartt. I'll print. work on it. So if I don't know how many times I have to say Carhartt before it will just sort of I'll work on it. I will work. I will, I will work on sponsorship, but go on. Yeah, the trousers I'm wearing today are black and um, therefore the product needs to be black. Not just black, but the same black as my trousers. And I am okay. really not stretching too far away from a real life situation here. All right. Um, so this would be very, I'd need to show a lot of restraint here because the most obvious thing that I would ask is, are you going to buy a million of these things? Are you alone going to buy a million of these things? And the answer of course is no, but I wouldn't do that to a client. So maybe I would say, all right, well, who's our customer? I think that maybe could be something that we should focus on first. Um, uh, it's a medical device uh, project and it's aimed at men. So they all wear the same things as me and think the same as me because I happen to be a man. Okay. Well, <laughs> let, let's, let's talk about this a little bit. Um, have we done any research on the perceptions of color in relation to our product line yet? Just hypothetically, just run, <laughs> run with it here. Right. <laughs> You chose the most subjective thing. Hear, Color is the most subjective one, by the way. Basically, what you're, you're doing the same as what we did as our department, not just me, but, uh, you know, I won't name them, but everyone else that was in that. Um, I just, um, I'm just finding this amusing because in the industry I'm used to, like, client is pretty much king. And so the client dictates the cost of something quite early on. And if, if you don't abide by it, they'll just show you the door quite quickly because we'll just find someone else that can do it then. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that, that's just the world I've always ever really known where it's like, you can come up with these kind of, you know, why do we do it like this? Like, but no, 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 it's, this, this is how much it's going to cost. This is, this is it. And if you don't like it, we'll just find someone else. <laughs> well, that, that happens earlier. That happens yeah. earlier in the process. Once you've agreed on a price, then they're, they're essentially paying you for your expertise. And it's the same thing with you. You uh, basically field candidates and, and they're relying on your expertise to basically find the right person for the job. And we are essentially finding the right candidate 
for final production, the final yeah. product. So, so it's not too different. So my challenge back is, okay, well, how long does that, how long does the research take? Have you budgeted for it? For it? Is it in the product plan? Um, how yeah. much is it going to cost? The program? <laughs> who's, uh, who's responsible and accountable for that? How much is, the, is that going to cost? Is that coming out of your budget or mine? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think that really what it comes down to is uh, this, we're not, we're not like in character at the moment, but what I would typically <laughs> do is, is basically figure that stuff out ahead of time in the proposal. So let's just pretend that we don't have the budget for this research uh, and we didn't do this, this research. Uh, then it becomes a lot more difficult because it is more of a subjective call. Um, so I would tend to avoid that type of client at all costs uh, if there isn't some sort of fundamental research being done in the first yeah. place. You try, and, uh, you try and screen that out early on, wouldn't you, in terms of like, is this the kind of client I want to work with? You'd probably have a good gauge quite early on whether that's yeah. going to be the and, kind of relationship you want to go down. And you don't always have a choice, to be fair. Sometimes no, no. you have to take on client work that you um, that is not optimal. Yeah, yeah, particularly you know if you found yourself in a position where, you know, you've lost a couple of clients or, you know, a couple of your key clients aren't doing stuff at the minute or you're early on, you've just got to get the work in. And there are times, you're absolutely right, where it's like, well, that inquiry is coming and I've, I've just got to take it. It's not my bread and butter, but I've got to give it a go. Otherwise, the lights aren't going to get, aren't going to be on next month. Right. So let's, let's, let's actually go back into character here. Um, <laughs> you want this medical device to be black, let's say. Uh, we haven't done any research. We don't have the research. We had to take on this client because we needed to pay the rent. Um, okay. So, uh, Drew, are you, have you ever heard that black is often associated with death before? <laughs> uh, yeah. And it can also, uh, you know, it can be associated with, uh, let's say, necrotic flesh or, uh, <laughs> or the problematic symptoms. But, like you asked me to be stubborn. So, <laughs> you know, asshole is what you get. <laughs> okay. No, let's keep going with it. Okay. So no, if you yeah, go. let's keep going. So, okay. Um, you, do you just want it to be black because you like black? Would, would you say that that's basically it goes with the reason? It certainly does. But in the context of medical devices, I think that you want to, ensure a certain level of confidence and uh, security with the product. Would you agree with that? Love it. You're hired. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Like, yeah, no, you're, you're right. I just think we could carry this on and just and spend all day doing this. I think an awkward client yeah. at the end of the day is an awkward client, isn't it? It's like you sometimes you're just banging your head against it, but if yeah. they want it in orange, they're getting it in orange regardless. Of okay. Otherwise, you just walk away, don't you, and say, well, actually. Exactly. So let's just fast yeah. forward. Let's just fast forward a little bit here. And let's just say, okay, you know, I've laid out a bunch of reasons, Drew. Um, mm -hmm. If you still want it to be black, that's fine. You, you know, this is your product as long as you are aware of the potential repercussions. So, for example, one potential repercussion is that if this is a medical device, it may be harder to identify if the object is actually clean if it's all black, for example. Uh, it may be associated with death or necrotic flesh if you wanted <laughs> to be more poetic about it. Now, if you're okay with this, with these potential associations with your brand and your product, we can do it, but I want you to just be aware of them. And that's basically how I would end it. And I'd want it in writing 
especially if it was something around engineering or tolerances. Yeah. If like they say, I want this to be five millimeters. And I say, there's no way it's going to be five millimeters. It needs to be eight. I'll say, okay, I can design it this way, but I want it in writing. I would yeah. definitely push for that. I think you're right. I, do you know thing. what? You've, I, I, yeah, you've raised a really good point there that um, it's one of those things that designers don't always like. And that's like very clear specifications like from, you know, there are living documents, but as long as you've got that traceable uh, decision history, uh, again, this is like medical device. Uh, this is pure medical device talk. Pure here, medical device, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's like, it's assessing the risk. So you've got the, you've got the decision, you know, client wants this. Okay. Well, instead of just saying client wants this, it's okay. It needs to be in line with product branding, whatever you, you phrase it in, in, a, in a more sympathetic way. But, a, but at least just address the risk of the uh, you know of the knock-on effects, um, and then yeah, if that if, if assess how how problematic that risk is. Um, I've heard people, and in fact, it was Steve at Small Fry uh, used to talk about um, ignoring hippos, the highest-paid person in the room. Um, <laughs> you know, and they they, they they can often have uh, well. They, they they have opinions, and a lot of the time a team will just just uh, sort of go along, and that's that's really dangerous. I think you need to be able to document your 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 process, your decisions, and yeah, and the risks that you're willing to take on. Exactly. Um, if if it's something that deals with people's safety, like a medical device, I would definitely want that uh, clearly articulated. Mm. One thing to remember is that. As an outside designer, you might not have the full picture. So maybe they want it black because they need to raise funding for investment and they know that it'll just look better in renderings and they're not telling you that for some reason. Yeah. So that could be a reason why. Like you don't necessarily have the whole picture, especially if you're an outside consultant. So that's another thing to sort of keep in mind. Uh, yeah. They may be, you know, keeping something from you for a whole bunch of reasons that are totally reasonable. Yeah, it's a great, it's yeah. a great, great point there, um, John. It's, it's. Um, I've particularly today. I've been messaging quite a lot of um, mainly kind of clients, I suppose, the people that I work with from a business side of things. So we're quite keen to bring on people from business on the pod. So it's like all well, it's designed truth. It'd be quite nice to bring on some kind of external influences, right? Of like people that work with designers or mm. you know people in quality or someone in marketing or because actually i think one of the big problems i think from my very limited understanding is that designers love to talk about design to other designers but they don't necessarily talk outside of that bubble and so um it's interesting that you pick up on that point whereas you know we could have on some sort of founder of something who doesn't come from a design background and they might make the point, well, actually, you know, if we put it in black, it's going to look a lot better on our Kickstarter. So, you know, and so in our self-interest, <laughs> we're going black. And it's one of those things where hopefully we, when we can start bringing on people that are from a marketing and business side of things, they might be able to give their own lived experience <coughs> and perspective on it, which hopefully we can get, which hopefully we value to the, hopefully have more value to the people that are listening rather than just, a designer saying how wonderful design is because I think we're all a bit sick and tired of. Um, I agree. That, I think yeah. that's really important, at least for for the way that I like to work with my clients. I don't, I don't ever assume that I, I know everything or I'm right. I, I prefer to 
you know, ask a lot of questions and understand what their goals are and figure out how I can facilitate it. Because really the fundamentals of any good designer is understanding the problem. And it's not just the design problem, it's the business problem. Mm. Um, so I think that's really, really important. I think that a lot of designers would benefit from taking a business class or just looking up, you know, basic business principles online. Mm. So like, what is, what is a click funnel, for example? Um, how do you, how do you pitch an idea and how do you make sure that you are catering to the interests of everybody in the room that you're speaking with? Mm. Because an engineer is going to care a lot more about certain things versus a designer versus somebody in business versus somebody in uh, marketing. So I think really understanding who you're speaking to and what it is that they care about is, is super important if you want to be a successful designer, at least yeah. in my opinion. Yeah, it's a good point there. And yeah, um, I'm, 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 are you looking I'm, for something, Drew? Are you? Yeah, I am, but I can't see it. Yeah. yeah, I've got all my books behind me. I'm trying to pick out... Um, there's a couple I wanted to pick out, but without being able to show them, it's all. That's okay. Yeah, when you talk about problem solving there, I was actually talking to someone earlier today. Um, I get these weird messages sometimes now. <laughs> we all um, do. Yeah, and um, I and it's like, um, can I have a conversation? with like, yeah, go on and I'll have a chat with you. I haven't got anything else to do at the minute. So um, <laughs> he, he was talking about his experience of moving from the UK to Europe and that actually kind of in the UK – so um, kind of if you're educated somewhere like Ufbra or Brunel, um, the attitude is more around problem solving when it comes to design. So what you touched upon there, whereas if you spend much time in Europe, it's a lot more ego driven and it's a lot more interpretive and um, just from his personal experience. And it's not so much from an educational standpoint, it's not so much, you know, let's try and solve the problem here. It's more about, their interpretation of the chair you know, and, and what it means and things like that. And that was just his observation from moving from the UK. I think he spent some time, um, he was working for PwC, but another, so a, quite a well-respected designer, just talking through the process of, of moving from, from one part and how design is different from one culture to another. I suppose that potentially might move quite nicely on to design out in the US. I know the US is, a pretty big place and you're not necessarily the voice for the for the u.s but with no you, i'm not no. i am not the, the voice for the entire <laughs> united states just want to make that very clear before absolutely. i say anything absolutely but you are the first u.s guest we've had on and so <laughs> we just call you the voice of san francisco and the surrounding area <laughs> no no do you know what, you know how many great designers are here no i'm not assuming that that responsibility here's what i'll say uh i actually have worked at a couple of different places uh it's a very small sample size, but actually what you described regarding the more European sensibility for design is in line with my experience as well. I worked at a small consultancy where the founder was, uh, I believe, Swedish. And it was very much like, this is how we're doing it. Like, I'm the boss. Uh, this is my vision for the product. And this is how we're going to do it. Um, and there are other consultancies a lot like that too, based on what I've heard. I haven't worked at Fuse Project, but I've heard similar things with uh, Yves Behar, where basically it was a very similar thing where it's like, you know, people come to Fuse Project to work with me. Yeah. Uh, I am the, the sort of voice of this, this company. And, and what I say is what we're doing, essentially. Hmm. Um, I think one thing that's important to note about American design, and I don't know if it's still as relevant today, but it has been incredibly pragmatic 
at least early on. So let me tell you guys a little story. The thing that's really interesting is that in 1851, there was a there was an exhibition called the great exhibition. It was in London's Hyde park. And essentially it was just an exhibition of everything that was happening, uh, across Europe, the U S uh, the UK, et cetera. And in this, it was basically just a big flex for every single country to show how cool and well-crafted all these objects are that they were designing. And of course, you know, France and Germany came with like these beautifully crafted, absolutely impeccably styled uh, firearms and things like that, and like pottery and, and vases and everything else yeah. you can think of, like festooned with all this filigree and stuff. And then the US or, or cult specifically came to the exhibition with a bunch of buckets of components for the cult revolver. And it was basically just a bunch of disassembled parts. And there was no decoration, nothing fancy about it. Uh, very, very pragmatically designed. And I think that sort of informed the, the future generations as well, where, at, where you know, maybe Europe and, and even the UK to an extent tends to uh, view design more as an artistic pursuit, whereas the US perhaps is viewed more from a, a pragmatic perspective, where the real value here is that you have all of these individual discrete parts that can come together. Right. And it's sort of highlighting the beauty of this manufacturing process, not the beauty of the objects themselves, because they were not beautiful in the traditional sense. So I don't know if that's really bled into uh, design now because it's 100 years later, but it's certainly interesting to think about. Yeah, we had a few listener questions Um John, where they were, where we said you were coming on, and they said, "Well, what's the difference? <laughs> now, what's the difference between design in the UK and design out in the US?" I think the first difference would be that it's a lot bigger, and so there's many different facets. I'd imagine of like different yeah. cultures and different philosophies and things like that. Whereas we're in the UK, you know, it's quite a small place, and so a lot of the people are educated in a similar way, or they come through similar systems, and so a lot of it's quite similar right obviously there's a couple, a couple of different exceptions and, and maybe different industries things are a little bit different but in the us it's just on such a bigger scale yeah that, you know, so maybe just, people just, people don't cross over as much i'd imagine exactly yeah i don't i've never been to the uk so i can't speak for it i've been to europe a few different countries um but just for some perspective in terms of geography i think if you like the us in terms of like the width of the country could span from portugal like all the way past Moscow. Now, of course, you know, there's a, un there's a unifying government and a unifying language, but think about all of the different cultures between Portugal and Moscow and how radically different they are. Mm. It's pretty similar with the US. I mean, you, San Francisco is like this little tiny microcosm of a bubble of some like, like, you know, naked people running in the streets and stuff. And then you go to, uh, you know, the Midwest where it's, it's much more polite, much more buttoned up, much more conservative. And, you know, there's everything in between. So it's hard for me to even say what yeah. U.S. design even is, you know. Are there, are there like design hubs, John, where like in certain parts, for instance, in the U.K., like London's a hub naturally and maybe some other big cities. But I'm presuming that San Fran's going to be a bit of a hub. But um, are there other parts of, are there large parts of the states where actually there's hardly any design so like although it's that big but this size i don't really do a lot so it's all kind of over here somewhere yeah i mean to be fair a lot of it is in california specifically right. san francisco uh portland oregon is about 10 hours north uh, there's a lot there seattle is another huge design mm -hmm. hub 
a lot of it is based in uh, on the West Coast because so many tech companies are based out of here, and that's mm. where a lot of the work is coming from for most of us. Mm. Same thing with like biotech, medical devices, all that kind of stuff. So yeah, there so, there is mm. there are hubs. So when you mentioned somewhere like Oregon, I'd imagine that a lot of those places are just founded from Nike and just like someone leaves and sets up shop, and then just gradually it just kind of builds and builds and becomes that hub. Uh, Cambridge is a bit like that in the UK where you know, there was a couple of agencies and then someone leaves, starts their own yeah. thing. And then it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And all of a sudden you've got seven, eight agencies all churning out you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 staff. And then someone else leaves and sets their own thing up. And is that kind of how those kind of hubs form in the US where someone leaves, starts their own thing. And then it's just over time, just got, just, cause I'd imagine it's just on a different scale than, than over here to the UK. I just, every time I look for, you know, industrial design jobs and keep my eye out to see who's hiring and things like that, it's, it's always the US, you know, that's on, that's on another level to, to other parts of the, of the globe, really. Yeah. I mean, it is definitely a major hub of industry and based on a couple of my friends who have started consultancies, that's basically how it worked. You know, they work at Fuse Project or Astro Studios or, you know, one of the other prolific agencies and they just start their own thing. Um, that's basically a, a good sort of model for uh, getting into the consultancy game. Yeah. But one other thing I remember about the European market uh, versus the American market, as it related to sunglasses and eyewear specifically, mm-hmm. was that um, the European market would lean more heavily on brand aesthetic or just brand in general and just sort of like the voice of the designers. Whereas Americans were much more likely to buy something if it just looked good on them. So you could slap like Tom Ford, or that's like a very uh, reputable eyewear company. Mm-hmm. You'd slap Tom Ford on a piece of eye- eyewear in Europe and it could be like a totally wacky, crazy frame. People are still going to buy that frame. Uh, in the US, they're going to be much more discerning and they're going to say, no, I look stupid in this. I'm not going to buy this. <laughs> so I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's like across other product categories, but with eyewear, it was a, a big deal. Like it really mm-hmm. mattered a lot. Yeah, I wonder how many, I think, yeah, you, you actually, that's probably quite astute because a lot of people would want Ray-Bans more than they would want, you know, the right size and proportion to fit their, you know, to fit their Yeah, size. my Ray-Bans are probably too small for me, but, you know, I'm in Ray-Bans, so. Yeah. From my point of view, I would echo, uh, yeah, John's John's points, really, because, I've, yeah, um, I've worked in Europe, UK, and the US, Um and I would say there's probably it, it probably comes a little bit from the uh, history and culture in that the US is driven by industry. So like pragmatism and functionality is huge. And often that's something that you associate with maybe some of the Nordic countries. But bear in mind, like the US in its well, in it, it in, used to be a huge manufacturing hub until it wasn't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um but again, like there's there's a huge sort of Nordic influence, um, certainly in 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 those sort of scales. Uh, but then when you look at, um, you know, you mentioned uh, France and you mentioned and even the UK, it's more sort of craft and but like in the UK that that sort of tradition and, and almost willfully staying a small company with only a few people that like hand roll a piece of steel for eight hours instead of just yep. press it out. Like that's why we have Ford, and that's why we don't have Leyland Daff. Yeah, 
Austin Motors or basically Jaguar is now what part of what is it? Um what's what's Jaguar part of now? It's part I'm of, not sure. Right? Something. Uh, what yeah. one thing what one one thing I noticed through um doing a lot of recruiting with um Shark Ninja, which is an American based company, one of those companies in the UK where you they're quite big employers now here in in the UK, but you don't really understand just how big they are because no one really owns a shark over here in the grand scheme of things, but it's a bloody massive company um, out in the States. Uh, and one thing that we realised quite early on was that actually in the US, it's, it's quite black and white when it comes from like industrial design to mechanical engineering as a skill set. And so why they looked at the UK market is that actually you find pockets of people that are a bit more blended too. So more of that kind of, what you would call a product design engineer, I think, in terms of title. Yeah. So that cradle to grave, don't really see that as much from an educational standpoint out in the US. So that was one of the reasons why they looked at the UK market quite heavily is because that skill set was more aligned to what they were looking to 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 um to, to get out of things. Probably just a byproduct of lots of dice and people they brought on and that's how they were educated and wanted to kind of replicate yeah. that and scale it. But that was just one observation that to answer that question loosely was that in the US, it seems quite black and white in terms of industrial design and mech engineering, whereas in the UK, it can be a little bit more fluid between the two. And that's even you can amplify that by 100 when you go to a market like Australia, where about like eight people can do product design in that country. So it's like they just do everything. Um, so maybe that's because of the this is less people doing it. They just a bit more generalist rather than like specialist um we tend to end every podcast job with asking the same question um we've had some really weird answers to this question um so far um one particular about breast 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 milk fridges or something drew which was quite a fascinating <laughs> one um yet um last time but we ask every guest about the strangest brief they've ever been given um strangest. Now, and i didn't know whether you had maybe from your freelance kind of stuff if you ever look back in time and thought a bit Dragon's Den or Shark, is it Shark Tank? Is that the American equivalent of Dragon's Den? Are yeah. there any, any particular weird and wacky things you've ever been, uh, been sent across to you over the years? So here's the thing. I try to forget about them. Like I try to just sort of block them out mentally because they're right. so upsetting. Mm. But um, yeah, I get them like monthly. Okay. <laughs> in terms of, I don't know if I can pick any one particular one. One sort of weird product that I worked on that's sort of in the line of like, just kind of odd things like catheters would, uh, was, uh, I helped to, to design a line of toilets for Kohler when I was at deep design. So that was kind of weird because you get really into toilets. And even as a designer, <laughs> it was something that I never really thought about. And I remember the engineer that I was speaking with, uh, I was asking him some practical questions. I was like, wow, you really know a lot about this stuff. And he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm really into toilets. And I was like, okay. <laughs> Yeah, so yeah that, that was definitely the strangest one that i can remember um but i i, I could look through my dms on instagram they always come through instagram for some reason oh, really? um okay I, I can look through at some point and i'll, I'll get back to you if i can find something any, yeah any so i was gonna ask what do you think is like next or where's it going for you for me personally yeah Oh, I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. I'm having a blast. So I've been working with a whole bunch of startups. I'm going to keep doing the wearable tech stuff. I'll keep doing the medical devices. I'm going to keep doing the YouTube. Uh, it's It's been a lot of fun. And uh, thank you guys for having me on. I appreciate it very much. 
Well, thanks for coming. It's been nice. Yeah, thank you for listening to the latest episode of Design Truth. Hopefully you're still with us and this is a timely reminder that you've been listening to this for far too long and uh, probably time to get back to work, guys. Um, if you enjoyed the listen, feel free to have a leave a, a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Um, but if you're on Spotify, just you know, just, just keep being you. Um, look after yourselves, everyone. Stay safe and I uh, hope to see some more of you soon. Ta-da. Ta-da.